Heavenly Father, the greatest need of the hour right now is for our eyes to see your glory, for us to taste and see that the Lord is good, for your worth, your beauty, the the glory of Christ Jesus to be experienced in the reading of your scripture and the understanding of what it means and how it applies to our lives. Father God, may we see your glory with the eyes of our hearts and may you be with us no matter where we are located, where we're watching this stream right now, and no matter what time it is, that your presence would be in the room with us and that we would see you with clarity and we would fall deeper in love with you. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So in Malachi 3, the verse verse of Malachi 3, uh, when introducing John the Baptist and his ministry, the prophet Malachi says this. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, we've been in a series, uh, really since uh, the end of March, that we've been calling, He Manifested His Glory, which is referring to, obviously, Jesus Christ. Uh, Not only Jesus Christ, but before He even arrived through the words that John the Baptist preached. And um, we began this, like I said, at the end of March in John 1.19, if you can recall that, when John the Baptist's ministry was first being engaged in earnest by the author. And um, this passage in Malachi 3.1 brings us from John the Baptist, the messenger that Malachi is talking about at the very beginning of this verse, all the way to today, what we're going to be seeing today, where the Lord comes into his temple suddenly. And these two parts of the book of John, beginning with John the Baptist and through all the way to this scene we're about to see right now, have been manifesting the glory of Jesus. All of this has been about his glory, us seeing it, us enjoying it, and us receiving it with gladness. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 2, verse 13. Um, next week, we have one more message in this series that's kind of kind of sum up everything and give us an understanding of what's going on. And then we're going to go somewhere else for a brief while this summer. John 2, verse 13. I'm going to read all the way down through uh, verse 22. 13 says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? 
Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that he had spoken. So let's paint this picture uh, a bit. It's Passover. And um, the Jews (laughs) that are all around the world are headed towards Jerusalem so that they can worship and celebrate this feast. Jesus and his disciples are doing the exact same thing. And it says in verse 14 that Jesus enters the temple. Now, the word here for temple in the Greek isn't referring to the main building that we all associate that word with, that main central structure that's really large, which is called nahos in in Greek. It's referring to the hieron, which is the temple complex, the grounds of the temple, generally referred to as the outer courts of the court of the Gentiles. <laughs> and so this scene takes place in this vast courtyard that is surrounding the main temple building. This is where Jesus is. And John tells us that Jesus, when he enters, he finds those who were selling. He makes a beeline for them. These people, the sellers of animals and the money changers, and the animals he mentions here are oxen, sheep and pigeons, which are obviously animals that were used for the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so these sellers and money changers are providing a service. That's what they're doing. They're providing for service for all the Jews who have traveled from around the world uh, just to get back to Jerusalem to sacrifice and worship God. That's what this is. And so this service that they're providing kind of makes sense. I mean, people can't bring a 2,000-pound oxen across the Mediterranean. It just doesn't make a lot of sense for them to do that with everything else that they're carrying. (laughs) And so this makes sense, and they need money changers when they get there because the money that they have may not match the currency that's in uh, Jerusalem. And so all of this marketplace that we see here in this passage was for convenience and practicality for people who wanted to sacrifice and worship, and these sellers set up inside the temple walls very conveniently in the outer court. And on the surface, I mean, on the surface, this seems reasonable and it seems honest. It seems like a real honest business, attempting to help people by making it easier, more convenient for them to worship God. The problem, obviously, as we read, is that Jesus doesn't agree with this at all. Something's broken about what's going on here. He responds, <coughs> excuse me, by finding these men who are selling and changing money, by seeking them out in the court. Think about how John describes this here. There is no conversation, there is no debate, there is no discussion, there is only action. He sees them, he finds them, and the next thing we know is he's making a whip out of cords. He's making a whip to drive all of them out. Sellers, animals, money changers, oxen, he's driving them out. And he uses a whip here. So you know that this is serious. This is, Jesus is not amused with what's going on in the temple grounds. He is, it's very clear, furious about this. He is angry. This is not the response of someone who wants to sit down and talk things through. He is 
livid about what is going on here. And just think about the context for a moment. Given the amount of people coming in, this is Passover. Think about like stalls and cages in lines in the outer courts. (laughs) And then they're suddenly opened and chaos ensues. Uh, Oxen, like I said, can weigh like 2,000 pounds. I mean, that's like a small car and it is all of a sudden barreling down the roads of downtown Jerusalem. And Jesus isn't done yet. He's just beginning. He's not done by a long shot. He takes their money and he pours all of it out. Then he takes their tables and flips them over. Now, what's the message that he's conveying here? The message is really simple. Business is closed for today. What they're doing is over. He, he tells, even tells the people who are selling pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. In other words, get out of here now. The Lord that they had sought, as Malachi said, has entered his temple and he is on a mission to rid the temple of these things. The sellers, the animals, the money changers, he wants them gone. Now, why is that? Well, before we ask that question and answer why it is he wants them gone, it's important to make this critical observation. No one in this context seems to be cheering Jesus on. Nobody in this context uh, has an issue with what's going on here. As far as they're concerned, this was a legitimate business. People came here to worship God, and this made it possible for them. They, they came here to buy. They came here to, to sell and change their money in order to conduct worship. And Jesus is saying to that, no, not today. It's not going to happen like this. And so we see here, Jesus isn't controlled by the crowd. He's never controlled by the crowd. He does not care what people think about him. He's not trying to win their approval at all. And this is just the beginning of his ministry. This is just at the start, year one of his ministry. Three years from now, at the very end of his ministry, he will do, and this is covered in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, almost the exact same thing. Not quite the same thing, but almost the exact same thing. He'll enter the temple the last week of his life, and he will shut down the entire operation. And the reason why is because Jesus, and we're going to see this over and over this morning, is about one thing. He is about his father. He is all about his father. And we see that clearly just even in the statement that he makes here. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. That's why their tables are upside down right now. That's why their money's all over the place, is that they made his father's house a house of trade. They took the temple, the site that was designed for the worship of God, and they made it into a marketplace for animals. They took a place that was created for prayer and for drawing close to the glory of God and and, and experiencing who he is and his forgiveness and his love, and they made it into a bazaar. They made it into a, a convenience store, like literally for convenience. This was supposed to be sacred. This was supposed to be holy ground, and yet here it was none of those things. It was filled with animals, filled with commotion, probably filth all over the place. And when Jesus sees this, he is furious and he makes a whip and he drives these people and their animals out. Now, why? Well, John tells us exactly why Jesus does this. 
Uh, he does it through the disciples. The disciples see what's going on here, and they remember Psalm 69. Um, Zeal for your house will consume me, is the passage they remember, written by David a thousand years earlier. And the disciples connect this moment that they're witnessing in the court of the temple with the zeal that David wrote about. This is the reason that Jesus does this. He is zealous for his father's house, and really, he is zealous for his father. Just think about who his father is. Let's think about God for just one moment here. The living God, creator of heaven and earth, everything exists by his will and for him. It is by his power that all of this stays together and exists every millisecond of its existence. And next to God, the entire cosmos and everything in it is worth as, as nothing compared to him. It is effectively emptiness compared to his worth and his majesty. And Jesus knows this. And he is fervently passionate for his father and for the worship that his father rightly deserves. He loves his father more than anything. And he would not allow this temple to be turned into a mere marketplace. <laughs> so Jesus isn't playing around with this. Now, before we get to what these men respond to Jesus with, we probably need to ask why this is a big deal. Because on the surface, it seems like it's a legitimate thing. I mean, they weren't in the temple proper. They weren't... Uh, blaspheming God openly as far as we can tell. And there wasn't any legal reason for them not to do this. They were clearly there, so they weren't violating any laws. What's the problem with what they're doing? The problem is that when this business, which may be legitimate on its own, was brought onto the temple grounds, the temple grounds ceased to be a place of worship and prayer, and it became a transaction. It ceased to be a place where people drew near to the glory of God and pleaded with him and praised him and worshiped him. And it became a place where you just changed your money, you bought an animal, and you sacrificed him. It became a business, a transaction, just something you do. And it ceased to be this solemn, joyful act of worship for the living God who created all things and sustains all things. This is critical for us to hear. This isn't just for them. This is for every age of the church. It's for risen hope today. Many people do church. Many people <laughs> do small groups. They serve in the church. They do church-related activities. Um, they even serve the community on behalf of the church. But for them, everything is a transaction they're not doing it for the right reasons. They're, they're doing external, external activities, maybe for show, maybe for pretense. Maybe it's just because that's what they do and they don't know any other way. And ultimately though, it means nothing to them. They are not governed by a passion or a zeal for God. They have no real desire to meet him and know him. All they have is a ritual. All they have is, is a, a transaction. Say the prayer read the verse, and then I'm done. I can go do something I really want to do. And there's no zeal for the Father. And if I can be real with you, just I'm in straight up with you, that's not Christianity. 
That is not Christianity at all. Doing Christian things does not make us a Christian. God is not interested in superficial external transactions. Any kind of religion, any kind of part of Christianity that makes pretense through external activities is empty and it's hollow and it's void of a zeal for the Father and therefore it is evil. Even if it looks nice on the outside, God desires our hearts, not simply external conformity. He wants us to love him and know him as he truly is. And we see this in how these men respond. They ask, what sign do you show us, Jesus, for doing these things? In other words, who gave you the right to knock over our tables, to send our animals away? pour out our money. Who gave you that right? They're demanding validation from Jesus. What's the problem with this? Why is this foolish for them to do? Well, there's two problems. First, Jesus has already given them a sign. He has already come into the temple like he was supposed to in Malachi 3.1, and he has hip-checked their business into the ground, and he's told them, never do this again. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. Don't play games with my dad's stuff or you're going to have to deal with me. That's what Jesus has done here. He is the Lord of Malachi 3 and he's not playing around. So Jesus has given them a sign and the, the problem is they don't like it. They don't like it and they don't like him. They're not lacking in evidence and wondering about the legitimacy of his claim. They know they're wrong. They know their motivations in their heart, why they're doing these things. They just don't want these things to change. It's not about evidence for them. It's about preference, what they want. They don't like this, which leads to the second aspect of this problem. This isn't the last time that they demand a sign. In fact, they will do this repeatedly throughout Jesus' three-year ministry, constantly demanding that he show him them a sign for what he's doing and what he's saying. And Jesus in Matthew 16, 4, tells them why it is they are demanding signs. And this is really important for us to see when they do this at the temple site. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. In other words, to, to seek for a sign of validation from Jesus, to demand that from him, is to be evil and it's to be adulterous. Now, <laughs> why is that the case? Why would Jesus say that? It's strong language. The reason Jesus says this is because he doesn't need to provide evidence or a sign. He doesn't. He is the evidence and the sign for who he is. His presence validates his actions. By saying, don't make my father's house a house of trade, he's telling them, I'm the son of the one that you are called to worship and claim you are worshiping, but have actually dishonored. And so to demand a sign after hearing him say that is to be evil. It is to be adulterous. It's effectively saying, listen, I can see who you are, Jesus, but I'd rather ignore you just like I ignore your father just like I don't treat him with respect, but instead use him as a sake for the sake of gain. This is adultery, spiritual adultery. It is, is loving something more than God, being devoted to something more than 
the very reason you were made. It's forcing effectively the bridegroom to the side and saying, I would rather give my love, my affection, my life to something else, to anything else. And in this case, it is making money. This is evil. Jesus has said all that he already needs to say, and he doesn't need to respond at all. He could just walk away. He could drop the whip and leave. But he doesn't. Shockingly, he sticks around and answers their demand. Verse 19 says, Jesus answered them to their demand for a sign. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? So Jesus's answer to their demand for a sign is this statement. He says, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And this is a staggering thing. So shocking for them that they're like, no way. (laughs) It's taken us 46 years to build this place, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? That is not happening. Um, And what they completely miss here in their response is that Jesus said, think about this, they don't even address this, Jesus said they were going to destroy the temple. And if you were with us for Easter, you remember, because we looked at this text in uh, Easter a few months back, You've already seen what they do to this statement. They take this statement and they twist it and they use it as a witness against him in his trial three years later, the trial that would lead to his death. They say that he was going to destroy the temple when he clearly says here, they are the ones who are going to destroy the temple. So how is that true? How is it that they're going to destroy this temple? Well, we've already seen here what they've done to worship of God. They've taken worship of God, which was why the temple existed, to meet with God, and they've made it into a transaction, business transaction for the sake of convenience, and they've done it on his front porch. They've reduced what it meant to go into this place, to encounter the glory of God, to a mere interaction that is business-related. The crime here isn't the service. I mean, they could have done this anywhere in Jerusalem and that would have been fine. The crime here was dishonoring God by making this about the service that they were providing instead of the one who has this house. They made the temple into a market and Jesus says, you're the ones who are going to destroy this temple. You're the ones who are going to do this. It's you. And in 70 AD, 40 years after this event, the temple will be laid to ruin. It will, the city of Jerusalem and the temple will be destroyed and God's judgment is going to finally collide with this unrepentant sin, this adultery, this evil, even though Jesus will, three years after this scene in John 2, warn them one more time, doing effectively the same thing in the temple at the very end of his ministry. <clears throat> Worship, this is the message that I see most clearly in this passage, Worship is not a transaction. It is not a a mere ritual. And if we think that it can be, if we think that it should be, if that's okay to do that, and we approach God without zeal and devotion to him, we should take this warning with deadly seriousness. The result of spiritual adultery 
for the people of Israel is the complete destruction of their temple. And the message God, the message we're getting here from this text is that God isn't a game to be played around with. Not our God. He deserves love and devotion and the zeal that Jesus is showing here. And yet Jesus continues. He doesn't just say that they're going to destroy the temple. He says, in three days, I'm going to raise it up. And this is what the men focus their attention on. They latch on to this and they respond in this way because for them, it's taken decades. In fact, the temple wouldn't be finished until just years before it actually is destroyed, historians say. It would take decades to make a structure this big, this massive edifice that is looming in front of them. But Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Now, John tells us in verse 21 that Jesus wasn't speaking about the temple in front of them, the building in front of them, the physical structure. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his own body, which means that Jesus, from the very beginning of his ministry, just let this hit you, day one was already talking about his own death and resurrection. He was already pointing to people or pointing people to his death and resurrection at the very beginning, even if his own disciples would not remember it, according to what John says here, until after it happens, they look back on the scene and they're like, that's what he meant. It took three years before they realized, and they were right next to Jesus, that Jesus here isn't talking about the temple building. He was talking about his own body. The question we have to ask is, was he only talking about his physical body or is there more for us here? For certain, Jesus is talking about his own grave being empty after three days. That is for certain here. But is that all that he means when he says he's going to raise up the temple? When John refers to the temple of his body, is that all that he's talking about? Listen to this passage from John 6, starting with verse 38. Jesus is talking here. Jesus says, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That's Jesus. So let's get what he's saying here. Jesus is saying that he came down from heaven so that he would do the will of his Father. And he tells us what the will of his father is. The will of his father is that he would die for the sins of his people and he would rise from the dead. But that's not all that rises in this passage at the resurrection. There's more here. Jesus says that everyone, every single person who looks on the son and believes in him would have eternal life. And what eternal life means is that Christ will raise him up on the last day. For those who have looked to Jesus and believed in him, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. They will rise from the dead. Jesus, I love this, Jesus will lose nothing of all that the Father has given him. Not a single person will be lost, including us, if we trust him and believe in him. 
not one person who the Father has given the Son will be lost. And if you believe in Jesus Christ right now, that means that this passage is talking about you. Talking about you. You will be raised. So let's go back to John 2. The physical temple is standing in front of these men right now as Jesus is talking. It will be gone in 40 years. Gone. It will be leveled and desecrated, but the true temple of God will not be gone. Not at all. After three days, that temple is going to rise. Jesus here isn't just talking about his own physical body. He is talking about the entire body of Christ, the church, us, everyone who is joined to him because the temple isn't a building anymore. It's a group of people. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 18 through 22. Paul says, through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. He says, in him, in Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul is saying Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the true temple. It's the cornerstone. And that temple is comprised of every single believer in the world. He says, we, talking about every Christian who will ever live, are being built up into a dwelling place for God. And this means that although the the physical temple is gone, the temple of Christ's body will always remain. It will never go away. It will never be destroyed. It will remain forever. Now consider this scene back in John 2. Jesus is cleansing the temple. That's what's going on here. In fact, if you've got ESV, that's the heading of this section. He is cleansing the temple. And if we were to go back to Malachi 3 and read a few verses down, we would see that's exactly what he said he was going to do when he goes into this place. He's driving out with a whip all that contaminates and pollutes his father's house, all that degrades the worship that was supposed to go on there. He is purifying it And he will do it again three years later. At the very end of his ministry, he's going to enter the temple. And he will drive these men out again. But (laughs) when that happens, and you can look in Matthew and Mark and Luke, when that happens, the gospel writers do not record Jesus making a whip and using it. They don't. There's no record of that in this final incident that, that happens. Now, why? Why don't they mention Jesus using a whip? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. They don't mention it. John 2 is the only place that we see him doing that specific event at the beginning of his ministry. Well, the gospel writers at the end of his ministry recording that event do not mention a whip there, but they do mention it several chapters later. They mention it later that week, and it's being used not against people in the temple courtyards, It's being used against the temple of Jesus' own body. When Jesus is scourged with a whip before he is nailed on a cross, 
the very stones that will comprise the true temple of God are being purified. They're being cleansed through the suffering of Christ. This is huge. This is so big. We need to let this grip us in order to secure us, in order to secure for us the very righteousness we would need to be joined to Christ and to be joined to his resurrection and to become part of this temple of living stones, First Peter tells us, Jesus had to pay for every ounce of sin we've ever committed. And that's what's happening in his suffering. That's what's happening on the cross. And those sins that we've committed include every single time where you and I, and we've all done this, have trivialized worship of the Father and made it into a mere transaction. We've done things externally, but our hearts were far from him. All of that was paid for on the cross and through the scourging and through that entire sequence of events. Every time we've made worship of God into a mere transaction and we have traded devotion and zeal that he deserves for ritual, Christ took all of that as he was being whipped and beaten until Isaiah tells us he was beyond recognition as a human. And then he hung on that tree to die. His body, the temple of his body, was destroyed just like he said it would in John 2. But then three days later, he rose from the dead. He stopped death in its tracks for everyone who would belong to him, who would be joined to him, who would believe in him. And they, on that day, rose too. Jesus died and rose. Think about this so that the temple wouldn't be a place you would go to, but would be a person that you are in love with. Which is why John, years later when he's writing the book of Revelation, talking about what eternity will look like for those who belong to Christ, says in Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city, the city of God, for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The physical temple is gone. Jesus is the true temple, and we who are joined to him like living stones have become the dwelling place for God. And so as we, in the next few moments during this next song, partake in the Lord's Supper, and we receive these elements, the bread and the cup, which represent the body and the blood of Jesus given on our behalf to accomplish what we've been talking about here so that you and I would be joined to Christ, so that we would experience the glory of being raised to new life, both in our lives now and one day fully when we are redeemed on his return, and that we would be the temple of God, the true temple of God, so that the cross would erase in our lives years of treating God the Father like a transaction and would grant us zeal by the power of the Holy Spirit and devotion to pursue him as we ought to do. In, in Christ's own devotion to his Father, Jesus took the whip of God's justice and wrath on his back, on our behalf, so that you and I can worship our Father in spirit and in truth, and so that we 
would be zealous for him. The cross purchased what we see in Christ in John 2, and it's ours. And so let's pray to that end that God would press that reality into our souls and that we would be devoted to his Father. Heavenly Father, your Son's work of redemption will take us in eternity to plumb its depths, to sing its praises and its glories. There are 10 trillion different things that you've done in and through the cross of Christ, most of which we will not see for ages and ages and ages until we are with him and with you. But this one we do see today. And we long to be zealous. We long to be fervent in passion for our Father. We long to draw our hearts away from the things that take our time and pull our attention away from you and pursue you with a devotion that is unwavering and unflinching. That we would love you. That we would long for you. Father, I pray right now that for me, and I feel this most intimately, but I pray for my, my friends and the families here that are represented by Risen Hope. Do this great work in our hearts. Transform our lives from the very center to be meaningfully devoted to you in everything we say, everything we think, and everything we do. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.